Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. My nephew was on his way, the adventure of his early 20s taking him to a fresh start in Brooklyn. Our family has always had a strong connection with New York. Ever since Jeannie McCormack from Castle Tara, County Cavan, aged 17, presented her passport at the Great Hall on Ellis Island 101 years ago. The same path was followed by another teenager, Patrick Aloysius Kelly, one year older, from Kilbegan, County Westmeath. Her future husband, my grandparents, Nan and Pop. They would meet about seven years later and marry in October 1929. Of five daughters, the first two, Madeline and my mother Jean, were born in the Bronx, at which point Nan's desire to return home outweighed any economic imperative to stay. And so the fledgling Kelly family came back home, New York a footnote for my mam, just seven months old, crossing the Atlantic. Nan was glad to get home but remained grateful for the opportunity New York had given her. Arguably, Pop would have been quite happy to stay. Instead, he swapped Con Edison for the ESB and the Kellys started over on Dublin's north side. How brave they were to go through with it, swimming against a tide of emigration from 1930s Ireland. For the vast majority, going back was never an option. Some more than others prone to bouts of homesickness for the old country. Not that this was an exclusively Irish feeling. I spent half my own twenties in New York, living for a spell in Brooklyn, where a neighbour of mine in Prospect Park had originally come from Albania. A 1960s clampdown by the ruling Communist Party put his entire family at risk. Gathering what they could, they fled across mountains and booked safe passage to New York. The tragedy was they could not bring all their children. In a dilemma that recalls William Styron's novel Sophie's Choice, his parents had to leave two girls behind. Both children were raised and cared for by relatives, but my friend felt his mother could never forgive herself. Years later, he finally made a return trip home to Albania. It was clear that his two sisters, now grown up with families of their own, had not forgotten either. As probably the only city in the world that celebrates insomnia, New York pushes you forward rather than looks back. So maybe it's inevitable that even along the Hudson, the past can be a refuge for those who can't quite let go. One afternoon in October 1988, my Albanian friend said he was going to the second convention of the Central European Community. I was intrigued. A lavish gathering at the Plaza Hotel just off Central Park. The main attraction was King Leka, son of Zog, former king of Albania. Guests at the plaza were welcomed by a Senator Werner, who turned out to be Minister for Agriculture for the government in exile of what was then Czechoslovakia. I wondered how a Minister for Agriculture in exile might occupy himself or if his daydreams for the old country involved tillage and milk quotas. How governments in exile were elected was itself a bit of a mystery. Some of the people filling the foyer clearly had a penchant for military regalia. Sadly, I never got the chance to ask Baron von Hans, 
Prime Minister of the Polish government in exile, about the four sizable medals pinned to his chest. The event felt like a magnet for discarded royalty. Delegates huddled in small, serious groups, awaiting the star of the show. King Lecha, heir apparent to the late King Zog. Lecha was just two days old when Italy invaded Albania in 1939. King Zog fled the royal palace for a life abroad, including a residency at the Ritz Hotel in London, vowing to restore the monarchy to poverty-stricken Albania. Zog died in 1961, so Lecha was declared king by a national Albanian assembly in exile in Paris. Travelling on documents issued by his own royal court in exile, his passport described his profession as, well, king. South Africa's apartheid regime gave him diplomatic status, so he lived in a secure compound outside Johannesburg. Some of the delegates at the plaza seemed a little out of their depth, not quite used to its French Renaissance opulence. I took them as ordinary people who had made a fresh start in America, arriving in hope, but who had left so much behind. Grateful settlers enchanted by this great city, and yet, like my grandmother, longing for home. A press conference was called. Ministers in exile from Czechoslovakia, Poland, Croatia, Estonia and Albania trooped into a small room upstairs, outnumbering a handful of reporters present. Bristling with nostalgia edgier than that of a Cuban exile in Florida, the Central European community rumbled with insurrection to declare its historic duty to organise whatever elements are necessary for liberation, preserve the spirit of resistance and undermine the will of the enemy to continue domination of our states. I inquired about their day-to-day -day lives, curious to know how they managed governmental duties from afar. There is no necessity to promote our personalities, replied Baron von Hans. The man to his left, who worked as a janitor when less burdened by diplomatic engagements, nodded heartily. None of us were to know that day but how quickly their world would change. Reforms already introduced by Mikhail Gorbachev would signal the end of the Soviet Union, loosening screws on the Eastern Bloc they called home. Suddenly, to cries of Excellency, the waters at the plaza parted. Towering at six foot eight, Lekka strode through the foyer carrying a ceremonial sword. A king at last. Delegates dipped and bowed, swooning at the majesty of it all. The janitor turned diplomat, reappeared, his drab grey suit replaced by a rented tuxedo. He looked suave in black and white. For one night, or until he had to climb back into his overalls, it was a time to savour. It just felt so New York. Tonight he could sit among royalty, raise a glass at the banquet and allow himself to be transported, drinking in the grand possibilities of a city where wistful imaginings can turn real and for a few hours at least anybody can be king.
Football has been part of my life since I was, well, a small boy in shorts. I loved the game and had just enough ability to play for my school. That said, the fitness level required to play as an adult meant that dipping in after many idle months or years was a foolhardy exercise. I last played when I was 35, almost 20 years ago. After about five minutes, a kid half my age clattered into me and I thought I'd been hit by a truck, begging to be allowed in goal for the rest of the game. My older brother still knocks about with an interesting group of budding geriatrics. A couple of years ago, he managed to simultaneously rupture both anterior and interior knee ligaments while simply running along. As he described to me at the time, football at our age is an extreme sport. Growing up in North London meant that there were really only two local big teams to support, Arsenal or Tottenham Hotspur. My grandfather was an Arsenal man, and it seemed that our family had followed his lead, although my brothers and cousins are more interested than our parents ever were. Now Arsenal are a team for whom the glory of winning a competition is rare enough for its supporters never to tire of such occasions. More hope than expectation is the unofficial motto, although the former has also been tested somewhat latterly. Think of Alfredo declaring his love for Violetta in Act One of La Traviata with the achingly beautiful line, Croce e delizia al cor, the torment and delight of the heart. Welcome to the world of the Arsenal devotee. At the age of 12, a school friend took me to my very first game at Highbury, the historic home of Arsenal. It was 1980, and Arsenal were playing Southampton, a team that included the legendary English player Kevin Keegan at the end of his career. The excitement of the occasion was somehow amplified by the constraints of my not-quite-teenage vocabulary. Take any well-worn metaphor of choice, they're all true when you're 12. You don't need to read Elias Canetti's 1955 Crowds and Power to understand that crowds do indeed have a power of their own. A large, passionate, tribal football crowd is exhilarating, consuming and terrifying. Football is a bit like diplomacy, though both war by other means. Arsenal won 4-0. You always remember your very first game. I was hooked. I applied for a season ticket and went to matches religiously for the next two years. Here was a zone my parents did not enter and knew very little about. It was almost like having a secret from them. Here was a place where I could remain forever a child, where childish responses and reactions were encouraged and even promoted, especially by the players. Here I could unplug my whirring pre-teenage angst and join another kind of pretend battlefield for two hours every other weekend. I met my wife Catherine a little over ten years ago. In order to be in contention, I soon realised I would have to meet with the approval of the twins, her beloved niece and nephew, who were nine at the time. Luck was with me for half the problem, as Gowan, it turned out, was a keen Arsenal fan. On learning that I was of the same persuasion, he confided in his aunt that we had a lot in common. Having found a collaborator in my future wife's courtship, I plotted a path to proposal. 
The initial gifts of Arsenal paraphernalia would be augmented by arranging for him to see his first game at Arsenal's new home, the Emirates Stadium. On the day, he was literally shaking with delight, unable to govern the euphoria that swept him up. These are glorious moments to instigate and take vicarious delight in. Of course they're unique, but more importantly, the moment is suspended in the memory, an insulated juvenile pleasure that is tapped every time we football addicts watch a new game. A few months ago, I called Gowan, explained what I wanted to write about, and asked if he could remember who we played that day. Wigan, came the reply immediately. We won 3 0. Give a little love. Shang-a-lang, shang-a-lang. Yes, we sang shang-a-lang. 1975 was the Bay City Rollers' big year. I was 17. A friend of mine was 12. Recently I asked her, what was it about them? She said they were my first love. She loved their music and energy, and their whole tartan regalia made them wonderfully quirky. She had a tartan scarf, shirt and jumper, and remembers crying in a shop in Carrigart when her mother wouldn't buy her the matching trousers. She reckons that Woody, Stuart Wood, was the gorgeous one. For me, Bay City Rollers was Les McKeown. So there was a touch of sadness and nostalgia when I saw the notices of his death. The band during the 70s, their songs being played at discos or on top of the pops, brought joy to our lives during my teenage years. Sha-la-la-la-la-la-la-la, shooby-doo-I. I wonder why we ever had to say goodbye. There's an element of fate to your early development, depending on the boy band that's popular when you're between about 8 and 16. My brother-in-law can verify this. He once scrambled unsuccessfully to get One Direction tickets for his 8-year-old daughter. And so, to cure her disappointment, part of their holidays were spent in Mullingar and the supermax that Niall visits when he is at home. Mullingar tourism must have wept when they heard One Direction's breakup announcement. I was a fan of one of the first boy bands, the Monkees. Myself and a friend in Cleveland wrote a joint letter in which I made the point of emphasizing my love for Davy Jones. I also wrote, don't get excited, I'm only 10. I quickly learned that all's fair and love and boy bands. My friend was the one who mailed our letter, so she was the one who received a picture postcard with copies of their signatures. She let me read the card, but insisted that it was hers to keep. Our friendship 
was never the same afterwards. Being in adoration of a boy band from afar is a safe way of growing up. The fan becomes part of a wider group. Peer pressure is at work too. Bay City Rollers, with their ankle length, waist-high trousers with tartan strips down the side and their shaggy haircuts influence the boys of Donegal, which in turn influenced what we saw as attractive. To take a line from a Bay City Roller song, it's a teenage dream to be 17 and to find you're all wrapped up in love. Les McKeown and the Rollers singing of romantic love with songs like All of Me Loves All of You and I Only Wanna Be With You fitted with our ideas of romance at the time. A few years ago, in 2015, Les McKeown brought the Bay City Rollers to the Mount Ergel Hotel in Letterkenny. I didn't actually go to see them. Some moments are better left in memory, I thought at the time. Part of me is sorry now that I didn't go. But we've all changed since 1975. The band's popularity waned. Members left and others joined. They made mistakes, as we all did. But when Les McKeown reformed the band, they brought joy to many. When they came to Letterkenny, the band played in the same hotel that used to hold the Saturday disco, which always makes me think of their song, S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y, Night. But of all the songs that they recorded, the one that fills me with most nostalgia is Bye Bye Baby. It makes me wish I could go back and visit that 70s room. I'd go back, not for the music, but just to get the chance to talk to myself as a 17-year-old. I would sit beside her and say, I know your friends have all been taken out to dance. I know you're feeling awkward. You'll be walking home on your own again. Life is going to get better than this, sweetheart. You will know what it is to love and be loved. I'd say to her, go easy on yourself. You're still grieving. It's only natural to miss mum. The future will be kinder. I'd tell her, believe it or not, in years to come, when you are a mother and grandmother, Bay City Rollers will actually be playing here. And I'd say to her, in the meantime, I'd use less of that blue eyeshadow. Learn to appreciate your curly hair. Wear high heels more often. And most of all, keep on dancing. Keep on dancing. Rest easy, Les McKeown. If you hate me after all I say, I can't put it off. Just gotta tell her anyway. lived in London, I was a keen theatre-goer. 
Tickets were more affordable back then, and I often took in a play with my pal, Joanna Kennedy. After a performance of Twelfth Night at the Old Witch, we sat in a pub discussing it and remarked on how often food and drink were mentioned. And then we realised that it wasn't just in Twelfth Night. Food and drink cropped up in every one of Shakespeare's plays we could think of. In those days, we were always throwing little dinner parties, so it only took a short hop of imagination to wondering whether we could create a feast featuring only foods that were actually mentioned in Shakespeare's plays. Straight off, a line swam back from Richard II, an instruction to a gardener to go bind thou up yon dangling apricocks. And then we thought of the line in Hamlet, where he bitterly declares that the baked meats from his father's funeral did coldly furnish forth the marriage tables, since his mother had remarried with such indecent haste. Once we started, we came up with a real cornucopia. Crab, mussels, periwinkles, medlars, gooseberries and strawberries, venison and roasted capons. One delicacy was the kickshaw, the word being a corruption of the French quelque chose, meaning something. In Henry the Fourth, Part Two, the cry is for a joint of mutton and any pretty little tiny kickshaws. There's no precise recipe for a kickshaw. It was just any small savoury dish served to the nobility. For Shakespeare, what was on the table was always a way of situating someone in terms of their rank and wealth. Only the rich could afford costly spices such as saffron or ingredients that required a great deal of effort to make, such as gelatin needed for the junkets and jellies found in affluent households. And so with plenty of choice, we decided on an April the 23rd dinner to celebrate Shakespeare's birthday. The drink was no problem, as the whole Shakespeare canon is awash with it. We could serve ale and small beer, weak beer, and there was sack, otherwise known as sherry, a particular favourite of Falstaff, that well-known glutton who would even add sugar to sweeten the sack still more. And of course there was also Malmsey, a sweet wine from Madeira. In Richard III, the king, portrayed as a total villain, is shown as responsible for the murder of his brother, the Duke of Clarence, who died a gruesome death, drowned in a barrel of Malmsey. I got rather carried away with the whole thing and wrote out the menu in mock Elizabethan lettering on a sheet of paper that I'd previously painted with cold tea to give it a parchment look. In addition, I slid the whole thing under the grill to scorch the edges. What emerged looked less authentically Tudor than a piece of paper rescued from the compost heap. Nevertheless, it invited the dinner guests to peruse the bill of fare and give the appropriate quotation and reference for each dish. 
On that first Shakespeare birthday feast, we invited fellow lovers of the bard and raised a toast to him before tucking in. In Henry the Fourth, Part Two, the rebel Cade promises that the sewers of London would run with claret in the first year of his reign. So that was our cue to bring in bottles of Bordeaux. From then on, Joanna and I took it in turns to host the feasts. One year, someone brought figs, having found a mention of them in Antony and Cleopatra. On another occasion, aqua vitae was served at the end of the dinner, for it could mean either whiskey or brandy. My triumph was a warden pie. In the winter's tale, the clown declares, I must have saffron to colour the warden pies. A bit of detective work revealed that wardens were rock-hard pears. Indeed, some historians believe they were among the rations given to the troops at Agincourt. Be that as it may, we all devoured the pie, made with ordinary pears, I didn't want to get too pernickety, nicely glazed with a saffron wash and some cream sweetened with sherry to help it down. No, we didn't dress up, although I rather wish we had, but our friend Rowley brought a small bust of Shakespeare, which we set at the head of the table, and there were many cries of, I say, good wench, and prithies woven into our conversation, the more so as the flagons and ale and the bottles of sack became empty. That inaugural Shakespeare dinner started a tradition we kept up for several years before it petered out. But during a recent trip to London, I was thrilled to see on the menu of the Quo Vadis restaurant a savoury appetizer that was none other than a kickshaw. Twas wondrous good, I vow. You write poetry, but are you a poet? Ivan Boland asked me. I first met her when she led a workshop that I was part of in Dublin from July to November 1989. You had to submit a number of poems to a kind of competition in order to be accepted into the workshop. She was a writer fellow in Trinity College that year and had invited applications from the general public. Workshops for writers were quite a recent development in Ireland at that time. For me, the words a workshop in Trinity conjured up my summer school break in 1966 when I helped my father restore the fine, decorative 18th century plaster ceilings in some of the scholarly rooms in Trinity. That summer we were based in the college maintenance workshop near the Pier Street side of Trinity and that's the gate I went in every morning to mix the plaster for my father. A rather severe Don complained aggressively to me 
when I accidentally splashed a little bit of pink plaster on the cobblestones outside his doorway onto the square. Never mind the fecker, my father said, but I did mind, and looking back, it felt as a kind of signal to keep off those West Brit cobbles. Much later I found out that that was the year that Ivan Boland graduated from Trinity with first-class honours in English literature and language. I wouldn't have known who she was at the time. We fifth years were still in the 19th and early 20th century school of literature run by the Christian brothers just around the corner from Trinity in Western Row. After I left school, I grew a beard and went to study in UCD on Ellsford Terrace where there were no cobbles, but I did detect a Donish atmosphere comparable to that of Trinity in the English and history departments. In that late 60s climate, myself and my friends were heavily influenced by the beat poets, then the Liverpool poets scene, whose credo seemed to be anything alternative goes. I remember being greatly taken by the eight-word poem by the late Adrian Henry entitled Morning Poem. I've just about reached breaking point, he snapped. Free verse and new shapes on the page was where it was at. Psychedelic music and the revolution will not be televised, raps pushed hard into the poetry of the day. So when I got a place in Ivan Boland's poetry workshop 20 years later, I came along with that free verse aesthetic and Ivan was not that kind of poet. I had read her poem Night Feed and that resonated bringing it all back home in a marvellous way. But things got sparky at times. When she gave us homework, which was to write a villanelle, a poem with a very specific rhyme and repetition structure, I really struggled and was left with a greater respect for the classical poets after that experience. The first meeting of the poetry workshop was held on a Saturday afternoon in the upstairs room of a pub on the banks of the Liffey, just down from O'Connell Street Bridge. The format was, you each read a poem and then received a friendly critique from your fellow workshoppers and from Ivan. There were 12 of us in the group, seven women and five men, some of them much younger than me and very talented when it came to putting a poem together. At least half of them went on to become well-known, widely published poets. Bona Grork, Jean O'Brien, Conor O'Callaghan, Mairead Byrne, Patrick Chapman, Noel Monaghan. But Ivan did not spare anyone her sharp and penetrating analysis, testing and teasing out every phrase and turn of the draft poems offered up for scrutiny, interrogating the poem and the poet while ultimately offering great support and encouragement. In her essay in defence of workshops for Poetry Ireland Review in 1991, she referenced our poetry workshop and declared it one of the very best workshops I've been associated with. Its establishment was one of the most privileged aspects of my time as writer fellow at Trinity College. A couple of us, with the help of Poetry Ireland, published a collection of some of the workshop output under the title Trinity Workshop Poets One in 1990. Yvonne wrote an introduction to it and mentioned her delight both at what was in the book and what was missing. The intangible, unportable atmosphere of argument and excitement, which is essential to a good workshop. We had some fierce arguments, some dead-end disagreements, At the end of the day, the argument remains unfinished, 
not so the poem. She wrote elsewhere that a good workshop can bring a writer to a state of crisis in relation to his or her work. In such a state, illuminations occur and discoveries are made which affect lasting change. For us, being in that workshop with Ivan was one of the most privileged aspects of our time as writers. She will always be the friendly critic looking over our shoulder. Thanks, Ivan, for the illumination. On this morning's programme, we heard King for a Day by Frank Shouldis. Football Crazy was by Oliver Sears. Keep on Dancing by Denise Blake. The Shakespeare Feasts by Margaret Hickey. And Ivan's Workshop was by Frank Kavanagh. The music was Waltz in A, Opus 254, number one by Dvorak, played by the Scampa Quartet. Undi Felice Eteria from Verdi's La Traviata, sung by Joan Sutherland and Carlo Bergonzi, with the Orchestra del Maggio Musicale Fiorentino, conducted by John Pritchard. Bye Bye Baby by the Bay City Rollers, and an improvisation of Purcell's Curtain Tune Upon a Ground by Christine Pluhar and L'Arpeggiata. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And for more about this programme and other arts and culture programmes, take a look at rte.ie slash culture. RTE Radio 1 You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.